Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to be talking about director, cinematographer, Ernest Dickerson. Who the hell is that? He is a cinematographer of all of Spike Lee's early films, Do the Right Thing, She's Gotta Have It, School Days, Jungle Fever. He's the man who- Malcolm X. Malcolm X. He's the man who helped Spike Lee do the famous shot in Jungle Fever where Denzel Washington screams to the heaven and goes, No! it zooms into his face is ernest dickerson responsible for when uh the character is on uh what looks like a conveyor belt as he's moving i don't know like you think he created that and spike lee just kind of accepted it for himself and ernest dickerson looks at him like dr frankenstein observing his monster (laughs) being like what have i done but Ernest Dickerson also went his own way, and he directed films like Juice, the famous for having the Tupac Shakur performance, uh, Demon Knight. Tales from the Crypt presents Demon Knight. <laughs> Bulletproof, and a whole bunch of television afterwards. And also, let us not forget the Snoop Dogg vehicle, which I just watched last night for the very first time, Bones. <laughs> Jimmy Bones. <laughs> Have you ever wanted Snoop Dogg to be an actual dog? You know, I think the thing that most soldiers me on Ernest Dickerson and I had to be sold on this topic but it was the idea of finally watching Bones which I always sort of wanted to see but never quite had an You excuse. push this podcast back you're like I need more time to watch Bones. Yes. <laughs> so Ernest Dickerson I think is important for a number of reasons. As a cinematographer defining the most important film, the Spike Lee style. We're going to get into that a little bit more. He's one of the only black genre directors that was working in Hollywood in the 90s and passionate about what he was doing. Now you have your F. Gary Grays or your John Singletons, but they were working specifically and usually like urban action films. That and then they've transitioned on to more anonymous yeah. work. While uh, Ernest Dickerson really got in there right from the get-go with his directorial debut, uh, Juice, which is very specific to his particular style. And then Demon Knight, mm-hmm. which you can see all of his genre love all over that movie. But Ernest Dickerson first started in film school. That's where he met Spike Lee. He was actually much older than Spike, even though he was in the same class, like five years older. Mm. And he got his start way before Spike, uh, mostly as a cinematographer. He was already working on music videos. He shot uh, John Sayles' Brother from Another Planet, which is a great movie if you haven't seen it. And um, he was working with people like Bruce Springsteen and stuff like that. Mm. And while he shot Spike Lee's first like major short films... Uh, we Cut Heads, it's called, right? Yep, that's yeah. right. He also had to open up a hole in a schedule to be able to shoot She's Gotta Have It. And this was the movie that kind of skyrocketed Spike up in the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. I actually read his diary that he wrote making the film. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of hilarious when, you know, in the popular culture, we consider Spike Lee a... Uh, very confrontational. and, and Although, you know what he would say to that? He'd say, you wouldn't say that to a white filmmaker. There you go, yeah. But in his diary, he is incredibly sympathetic and just a guy that wants to get movies made. In a lot of the entries, he talks about like, oh my God, I can't tell anybody that we're making this film because if it falls through, I'm going to look so bad. So just keep it to yourself, Spike. Keep it to yourself. I was listening to the commentary for Do the Right Thing and he was mentioning that in 1997, he was going to come out with the Jackie Robinson story. So (laughs) that's what happens when you say that you're going to make a movie, I guess. Oh, by the way, I also, this is off topic, but I read Spike Lee's book about making Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. There was one part where he goes off on a rant about how crazy it was that Dan Aykroyd was getting $40 million to make nothing but trouble, but he was only getting like, 20 million or something for Malcolm X. And that is absolutely true yes. and insane. 40 million dollars for nothing but trouble. That's 40 million dollars in like 1992 dollars. So 
<laughs> so that's like a hundred bajillion dollars today. And um, She's Gotta Have It is a beautiful looking film. I think you can see Spike Lee and Ernest Dickerson style already all over it. Did you get a chance to watch it? Uh, no, but I did revisit Do the Right Thing. Mm-hmm. And so something that's interesting about Ernest Dickerson and Spike's relationship, and other than the kind of over-the-top, I would say goofy style that Dickerson brings to... I think comic book. Yeah, Sometimes comic book. I, especially in his horror films, it looks like actually you're flipping the panels of a comic page. And in Demon Knight, uh, I, I thought maybe that's an homage to Tales from the Crypt and its comic book roots, but it's it seems pretty to recur- prevalent. It occurs in all, all of his yeah. films. In Spike's diary for She's Gotta Have It, he talks about how that when he acts in front of the camera, it's Ernest that directs and they trust each other enough that they feel that they can switch off. Hmm. One of the questions that Will asked before he did this podcast was, is Ernest Dickerson unimportant? filmmaker in the sense that we could talk about him for an entire episode and i think that just his involvement in like these canonical films especially do the right thing which is one of the best movies of all time i think already cements him in that position yeah uh well i listened to the commentary on do the right thing the criterion collection commentary and it really underlines kind of how much of the visual style came from dickerson in the commentary he talks about how his two big influences as a cinematographer were Jack Cardiff, who worked with Powell and Pressburger, and Vittorio Storaro, who did The Last Emperor and, mm. and Apocalypse Now and many other uh, films. And Dickerson uh, talked Vittorio S- Cafe Society. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, which is a great looking film. But Dickerson talks about how they used color expressionistically to evoke emotion and not so much realism. And one of the things he liked about Jack Cardiff and Powell Pressburger was that oftentimes in the middle of an otherwise realistic movie, there would be a magical moment or a moment that is not, you know, in a different plane of reality. So in Do the Right Thing, you can see that in the scene where the camera roves around to five or six of the key players in the film as they uh, spew ethnic slurs at the camera. You know, it goes from Mookie to Danny Aiello mm-hmm. to the Korean grocer to a bunch of other people. And I think that this kind of stylistic excess is presented in Do the Right Thing is what makes it so powerful for people. Like, it's a film that is trying to invoke the idea of a heat wave. Mm-hmm. And I think that every frame brings that to the viewer, especially like... You know, where you have the older men sitting in front of like the giant red wall and it burns itself right into your retinas. And it's something that's very difficult to forget. I found the commentary very interesting because Dickerson talks a lot about just the work of evoking a heat wave visually. So much of it comes in big, bright colors, no cool blues Mm. or or greens. Uh, uh, He talks about how he used a particular kind of light, carbon arc lights, to simulate sunlight, which were quite antiquated at the time. And in fact, he had to train his gaffer to be able to even use them. Well, they're probably extremely dangerous as well. (laughs) Probably. He talked about how the first two weeks of filming the movie, it was actually very cloudy and rainy outside. So he insisted that it shoot on a street that was oriented north-south so that one side of the street would always be in shadow so that he could work on a cloudy day. So the first time you see Radio Raheem in the movie, the camera is on Martin Lawrence and his friends on a stoop, and then the camera does this whip pan over to Radio Raheem, doing this very comic book low-angle shot of him. 
the sky is actually cloudy and dark behind him, but it works because it it has this comic book effect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think this is the time that Will Sloan and me are going to drop our hot takes on do the right thing. Did Mookie do the right thing when he (laughs) threw the garbage can through the window? Uh, Do the right thing is a classic. Like, come on. It's it's unbelievable. It's just a masterpiece. Uh, One of the things that got me this time, I'm a sucker for any movie that really creates a sense of space and a, a sense of place and a sense that this town or this block is an ecosystem. Mm. So there's the one scene where Mookie gets off work and he like crosses the street and he's like saying hi to all the people who are passing him. And you see the whole block there in that shot. Or there are other shots where people will be talking and you just see Ozzy Davis in the background, not doing anything. It feels like a lived in world that will continue even if the camera just moves a little bit off to the side. And I think one of the best scenes in the movie is when Danny Aiello and his son, John Turturro, are talking at Sal's Pizzeria and the camera starts from very far away and it slowly goes in as Turturro is basically being very racist and saying, I can't work with all these black people around. And it's this perfect synthesis of elements. There's Dickerson's cinematography where the light is coming in from the window and we see the darker sides of their face and we see the slow camera move. There's the mournful jazz music that's playing that gets more and more intense as the scene goes on. You see the life of the street in the background. You see the Korean grocery. It ends with this confrontation where John Turturro actually gets outside and and starts yelling at the guy who's outside the window, Mm -hmm. the guy uh, carrying around the picture of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, which was apparently improvised. Wait, in in that moment? Yeah, it was improvised in that moment. Like John Turturro was not expecting to go out. (laughs) So he went outside and he knew where to stand so that it would work with the composition. And Danny Aiello, you know, buries his head in his hands and looks so embarrassed. So it's this perfect synthesis of, you know, the cinematography, the set design, the acting, the music. Like, it's just electric in the way that the movie is it's incredible and i don't know watching it i've liked some of spike lee's recent movies i liked chirac i know it was very divisive i really like chirac as well but uh this this one had an energy and an excitement about the possibility of film that you can only have when you're young i think well i think that it's also something that ernest dickerson brought to the film Mm -hmm. because i mean spike is a cinephile himself he talks about it but if you read about ernest dickerson like he is the ultimate cinephile and he loves this stuff and he wants to experiment and i think that still exists in spike's work but if you look after Malcolm X, when Dickerson leaves, Spike's films become, like, different yeah. than they were before. And that's fine. You evolve as they an artist. They don't have the same energy. Exactly. Like, something like Clockers has a completely different kind of energy yeah. that's really good. Yeah. Crooklyn is very kind of mellow. And I think that they had a, an amazing partnership. I don't know if it could have lasted longer, like, if, if they would have kept making movies. Because I know that Dickerson mm. did want to be a director that was his main goal and like anybody who wants to work in film he was also a very good cinematographer so he could make that something to pay the bills Mm -hmm. like if you look at his filmography there's a lot of funny credits like he did a hong kong movie that shot in new york called laser man that true heart produced (laughs) he directed it no he was a cinematographer on it yeah and like it's just those kind of like work for hire projects that are just kind of amazing to see the breadth of work that he was able to do early on in his career because after malcolm x he just stopped being a cinematographer and he made juice yeah which i'd never seen before but i just knew that it was part of that cycle of uh early to mid 90s hood movies yeah uh boys in the hood menace Menace to society Society, south central exactly and i also 
knew that these movies inspired so many think pieces at the time, so much like chin scratching about the depiction of violence in film. And uh, <laughs> all what, by white people. What, what are what are the messages that uh, we're delivering in film and that young people are seeing? So I went to this movie, I think, with a burden of expectation that it would feel very important. Oh, did you? I don't know. It's just because it. Huh. This cycle of movies has like an import attached to it. Yeah. And I was kind of surprised watching it that it feels like an exploitation movie. Well, that's what Dickerson said, that he wrote the script because he wanted to make a film noir mm-hmm. and he wanted to start teenagers. That was his main goal from the get-go because I think that he views himself a little bit as a genre filmmaker mm-hmm. and that's all he wanted to do because Juice, if you haven't seen it, it's a story about a bunch of friends, including Tupac Shakur, that a horrible crime happens and murder ensues and then it turns into a bit of a cat and mouse game like that's what the movie is yeah it takes place in harlem where uh tupac is the leader of this kind of gang of four young men and as tupac explains in the film he who has the most juice mm-hmm. uh which is the most power on the streets the, the the most ability to intimidate the people around him uh you know has the power yeah so he wants to Instead of just like petty crimes, he wants to rob a store. Mm -hmm. And then when he shoots the owner of the store, even though he's a wanted man now, he has more power on the streets. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he kind of gets off on having that power. So that's an interesting idea. Yes, it is. But it plays itself, like you said, in a very exploitative way that it wants the thrills. You can see Ernest Dickerson kind of leaning into the colored lighting that you would see in like... It looks almost like Dick Tracy or something, <laughs> yeah, exactly. honestly, the lighting in this film, the heavy blues. <laughs> well, uh, Dickerson has talked a lot about how he kind of became a little bit obsessed with Mario Bava mm. after he was properly introduced to him by Martin Scorsese while Dickerson was the cinematographer for a commercial Scorsese did. Huh. And you can see that in almost all of his films as a director, especially in Juice, which, like you said, that very stylized cityscape mm-hmm. and the camera movers are very specific. Uh, oh, also there's a scene where the four guys watch White Heat on TV <laughs> with Jimmy Cagney. Yes. And all of all of the films of his that I've seen have these like little movie references. There's a, There's a scene in Bones where somebody says... You know, they're, they're walking around this dilapidated house they're going to buy. And one of them says, hey, maybe the person who stays here for the whole week gets to win Vincent Price's fortune. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Which and- it's a little jarring, to be honest, <laughs> to hear somebody say that. But at the same time, I don't know, in a movie like this, I, I'm kind of happy to hear a reference to House on Haunted Hill. I mean, I think probably <laughs> one of the reasons that I did avoid Juice for such a long time is I did think it was a drama, like a straight up drama. Yeah. And I was like, ugh. Okay, I, I guess I'll watch this. Because the John Singleton film, uh, Boys in the Hood, yeah. has a bit more of a... Somebody made fun of it as being like an after-school special. Exactly, yeah. And I don't think there's any of that in Juice. Yeah. But at the same time, because we are white Caucasian males and we weren't at the age when Juice came out, like it's difficult to understand how much of an impact it had. Like its soundtrack was huge. Mm. I remember my sister, who's older than me, had it on tape. I remember seeing it in the garage, just sitting there. That's interesting because watching it, it feels so dated in a way. Like the scene where uh, Omar Epps and uh, the other guy are having the like DJ battle in the club. And, yeah. and you know, they have the records that they're scratching and everything. Like, it's it's very, like, in living color, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but you just were around back then. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, now when uh, people are going to look back at our generation with our memes and our Twitters, it's going to seem like a big joke. But, like, that's what was so funny about Straight Outta Compton. I mean, the movie is set in the early 90s and it has no period detail at all. It's <laughs> as if NWA were, like, a mid-2000s rap group. But the thing about Juice 
which I found interesting, is that it's one that people kind of remember was kind of swept under the rug. It was recently uh, released as a Blu-ray, a big special edition, and it was Ernest Dickerson's wife that had to force it through the system. Like, they just didn't want to release it, which seems crazy to me. I mean, everything else Tupac Shakur has ever been involved with (laughs) has been, you know, uh, flogged to death. (laughs) Every every alternate take has been released. Why not Juice? Well, it's a classic, like, I don't know, this seems to be more like a movie for um, African Americans. I don't don't, think it'll sell. People who don't spend money on Blu-rays. Oh, wait, uh, Girls Trip made uh, was number one at the box office? What do we know? So after Juice, Ernest Dickerson made Surviving the Game, a most dangerous game action film that starred Rooker Hauer. It's a lot of fun. Not much to say about it. But after that, he made Demon Knight. Now, if people don't remember how big Tales from the Crypt was in the 90s, it was huge. It was a show that played on HBO and that had a roster of stars in it that had no place anywhere near it like Arnold Schwarzenegger directed an episode wow. Michael J Fox was in one like it's pretty crazy and I guess you could say the brand has really died since then <laughs> <laughs> oh man that was a pretty terrible pun <laughs> yeah I remember that when I was a kid I had a book of tales from the crypt that uh detailed its history as a comic book and that had an episode guide of um the TV series. And man, those pictures of Demon Knight that were in it blew my mind. There was a shot of after Billy Zane, who um, co-stars in the film, punches a guy through the head. And there was just a still of that like yeah. shot. It's and like Ricky O. Yeah, exactly. So when I finally saw the movie, my expectations were very high. And man, is that movie fun. Yeah, it's a good romp. Yeah, it is. I'm not going to say I loved it or anything, but I had a good time oh, watching man. it. Yeah. I remember that I loved it when I was a kid because... It did the stuff that I loved, all this horror tropes and things like that, but did it in a big, goofy, cartoony way. Yeah. Like, it's a horror comedy in yeah. a way that studios It's like Sam did. Raimi or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, uh, as someone who is an avowed Sam Raimi fan, it's easy for me to love. Uh, Billy Zane uh, is, is fantastic terrific, in the movie. And I was watching it thinking, why didn't he become a star, you know? Uh, he had poor ev- career choices. He had everything he needed. He was in Titanic. He's great. <laughs> in Titanic? Well, yeah, actually, you know, I think he is great in Titanic. Really? He's pretty yeah. hammy in Titanic. But I like that. I think t- Titanic needed more hammy performances. You know what the thing about Billy Zane is, if you watch the choices he makes in his career, he always underplays characters. Yeah. And the ones where people, like, really love him, like in Demon Knight, where he, you could not go any bigger. I'll, I'll always love Billy Zane for taking his Titanic juice and spending it on uh an adaptation of an unfilmed ed wood script <laughs> that's right he made i woke up early the day i died i've never seen that movie is it good it's interesting yeah, yeah. i like it <laughs> interesting is probably the best way to describe i'm hedging it. my bets because most people hate it but, oh really but i think it's kind Played of midnight a, madness in toronto well, when it came out i think uh i woke up early the day i died really kind of captured it doesn't feel like an ed wood movie but it feels like something that would emerge from the world ed wood was in oh. that kind of seedy underbelly of la <laughs> So, Demon Knight, uh, I mean, there's not much to say with it. I really, really enjoy it. Nice to see Dick Miller in the house. I mean, this cast is Thomas Hayden Church shows up. Jada Pinkett Smith ends up being the star of the movie. Mm. Uh, You know, it's a lot of fun. And it has its fans, so I don't think that, you know, saying it's good is that much of a shocking statement. But you know what doesn't have its fans? Bones. (laughs) So Let's talk about Bones. (laughs) All right. I remember when Bones came out, and it just looked like... It looked like this movie that had a kick me sign on its back because it was so just unfashionable looking like a kind of hip hop Tim Burton movie. On the DVD, there's a featurette about 
the influence of Mario Bava on Bones. Watching it this time, you know, having seen Juice and having seen uh, Demon Knight, I was more receptive to it than I would have been otherwise mm. because I felt the Ernest Dickerson touch. Yes. Like I see the big spooky house and I hear the movie references and, you know, the the off kilter camera angles and the weird lighting. And you and you think, oh, yeah, this is the, the, <laughs> this, my friend Ernie. This Ernest. Yeah. And, and <laughs> so I don't know. I, I kind of had a good time watching it, even though it's not very good. <laughs> I mean, it's a film that's a huge mess. Like yeah. I remember last time I watched it wanting to love it and I just couldn't quite yeah. get into it. Oh, and it's got a, a black exploitation element yes it, it does as well, just to add to the soup <laughs> yeah because it has uh flashback sequences which feature pam greer yeah and uh pam greer as uh the late jimmy bones his <laughs> ex-girlfriend jimmy bones of course played by uh the man himself snoop dog <laughs> who, who we that? should do an episode on because he has soul plane he directed an entry in the girls gone wild franchise he did yeah i think it was called snoop dog's doggy style oh, man. What, where's our important cinema club episode on girls gone wild <laughs> all right all right snoop dog only made this movie because he said he wanted to be freddy krueger <laughs> that's the only reason i think snoop dogg is one of the biggest flaws of the film you think so i think that uh whatever his other talents he does not have the screen presence to pull off this character mm. he, there's something so mellow let's even say uh drug affected about his screen presence <laughs> He look he looks shall we say stoned. Yes he does. And it keeps him from being very intimidating. Mm. And also he looks like Snoop Dogg. <laughs> yeah. Like like I'm sorry, it's just I I'll never get over the novelty of seeing Snoop Dogg as Jimmy Bones, the feared uh numbers runner from Yeah, from but he's the... also loved in his community. That's yeah, important. Right, right. And so in 1979 he was uh backstabbed by a corrupt cop and by a drug dealer uh who he worked with. The drug dealer later grew up and uh, rose up from the ghetto and became a, a rich man. But now he's afraid because it looks like the spirit of Jimmy Bones is coming back. And a bunch of teens are going to have a party in Jimmy Bones' abandoned house. That's right. They bought the abandoned house and turned it into a club. But there is a dog, a literal dog, <laughs> not a Snoop Dogg, but a literal dog who's wandering around the house, which contains the tortured spirit of Jimmy Bones. And the more that this dog eats, the more it becomes Jimmy Bones again. <laughs> Uh, and it has a couple of scenes in it, like when there are all the maggots in the club that yeah. kind of made me think of an Italian exploitation, exploitation film. Movie. Yeah. I feel like it just doesn't quite go far enough and its focus is very scattered. The first half is very boring, I yes. think. And um, finally, when Jimmy Bones shows up, he's just an invincible killing machine yeah. that can't be stopped. When I think of Bones, I think of the colored lighting, the wacky angles, and the terrible CGI. There, there's just no way to get involved in this story. Mm -hmm. There's like there's no anchor, convincing anchor to this film to make all the wackiness to have a point of entry. And everything feels just a little half-assed. Is it like editing notes that makes it so jumbled as it is? Or like if there was just a little bit more focus, I think I would enjoy it more. Ernest Dickerson, kind of his career, went into the land of TV movies after Bones. I mean, it was a place that he worked in all the time, like even right after uh, Demon Knight and Bulletproof, the classic Adam Sandler. Oh, which uh, you watched for this episode. I did watch Bulletproof. How it's was fine. It? Okay. Yeah, it has a little bit of that Dickerson energy, like like <laughs> Sam Raimi style, like someone fires a bullet, it's like across the room. But it's also difficult to tell apart from all the Lethal Weapons buddy comedy movies that were coming out around that time. Have you seen the final theatrically released Ernest Dickerson film, Never Die Alone? I did watch it this week. How was it? Uh, once again, kind of a little bit too jumbled to really work, mm -hmm. which makes me wonder if that's 
maybe a trait of Dickerson's oeuvre, which is that like he has so many ideas that when he tries to put them all into a movie, mm-hmm. it doesn't quite work. The thing about Never Die Alone, which is the DMX starring uh, gangster tale, is that it has a really interesting structure where DMX actually dies in the first like 20 minutes and his story is told through tapes that David Arquette finds and listens oh, nice. to, while there's another story running concurrently where someone who ends up maybe being related to DMX is seeking revenge. Uh-huh. I, the thing that didn't really work for me is that Dickerson tried to create a different kind of style, which is like shaky handheldish, but at the same time, you can't help but play into his love of like colored lighting and a goofy angle here and there, mm. which wishes that he had shot it more in the style of juice rather than this kind of imitation of, I don't know, the shield that was popular around mm. that time. So no more theatrical movies, but he has directed episodes of many of the most popular TV shows of recent years, mm-hmm. especially The Wire. Yep, that's right. Um, he did episodes of The Walking Dead. If you look at his IMDb, the, the it's upcoming, just filled. The uh, upcoming HBO show, The Deuce, I believe he's involved in. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And you're looking forward to that one. James Franco playing twins on 42nd Street. I'm in interested. The 70s. I'm interested, you know? And it makes you wonder, like, what has kept him away from making feature films? I don't know. I think you just have a, a few too many flops in a row. And, uh, and you know, he's black, so that is a well, hundred that, times. Uh, that, that's what you're going for. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was aiming right, for. Right. Because, like, look at Guy Ritchie. He just had, like, three yeah. flops in a row, and he's directing Disney's Aladdin. But the thing is, like, Ernest Dickerson never also had, like, a Sherlock Holmes-sized Yeah, band. he didn't. I don't know. I, I don't think he probably ever got to the part where all of his movies feel like the sort of movies that the studios would interfere with. Right? Yes, because they're just kind of... Uh, I- I don't want to say like slot fillers, yeah. like it's bulletproof. So there's going to be producers over him yeah. making sure that he delivers something that's palatable to the yeah. biggest audience possible. Yeah. Uh, he did direct a film recently called Double Play based on a famous novel. He did it independently and is currently seeking distribution. Uh, I mean, oh, that's good. Yeah, I will check out anything that Ernest Dickerson's does because I like his aesthetic. I haven't really watched his TV series because someone else could pull the strings on those ones. You have to fit the style of the of the show. And what I like about Dickerson the most is that he has a distinct style. Mm. And you know, maybe he has uh, you know, a studio can give him a Marvel movie. <laughs> That'd be fun. Why not? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Ernest Dickerson will always have uh, do the right thing, which is an undoubtable classic Mm. which he was obviously very much involved in okay so letters yeah letters no incitement you've just become cold and hard i just frankly expect letters at this point (laughs) as my right (laughs) we have a letter here from violet luca she goes hi guys like Will, I have always found the absence of sex or sexuality in Christopher Nolan's work very curious. Perhaps that's why a particular part of Michael Caine's introduction to the art and making of the Dark Knight trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote the introduction to the art and Michael Caine did? Yeah. I don't think he actually wrote that. No. I think that was some... Yeah, I will give you $100 to put yeah. your name on that, sure. Christopher also works very closely with his wife, Emma Thomas, who has been a producer and co-producer in all his movies. She has also produced his four children. So a guy who espouses the Hell most yeah. garbage nihilism through big, important speeches <laughs> in all of his films has four fucking children. <laughs> it would seem that Chris is not unlike one of Gotham's elites and wants to keep all the power, in this case, baby making for himself. I'm glad to hear that Christopher Nolan fucks. Yes, good good does. for him. <laughs> Doing a bit more research, I discovered the ridiculous British names and acting credits of each child. Magnus Nolan oh my God. <laughs> was in Inception. <laughs> Rory Nolan was in The Dark Knight Rises. And Will Moore's 2014 film, Tainted Love. Oliver Nolan was in The Prestige. And Flora Nolan was in Interstellar. That's uh, unbelievable, those names. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> 
<laughs> Can I get it out of the pretentious uh, British names book? Wow. According to the Christopher Nolan fan Wikipedia, man, Violet went deep on this one. <laughs> Do you think she's is, like is scarred? The, is the, the Christopher she... Nolan fan Wikipedia just a Gamergate forum? Like, <laughs> yeah. is it a 4chan place? He likes to use their names in the working titles of his films. Naturally, his awful gender politics... Was Dunkirk the name of one of his kids? <laughs> ...are blindingly apparent in these titles. Oliver's Arrow, as opposed to Flora's Wedding and Flora's Letter. Hopefully, there will never be an important Cinema Club podcast about these kids' career. <laughs> Keep up the excellent work, Violet. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. I don't know, she seems to have said it all. Yeah, like... that's... <laughs> I get the feeling in this letter that Violet does not like Christopher Nolan very much. No. No, not at all. But do do we have anyone who does? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> no, sadly, we did not receive any of those letters. Like an angry, like 10,000 word letter yeah. defending Christopher Nolan. I mean, excuse me, what you don't understand is that Batman is the most serious superhero. <laughs> His parents were killed and now he uh, is... Uses that to motivate... Going out into the night. Yeah. He's putting himself out on the light. Did you know he has no superpowers? <laughs> <laughs> this letter is from John Stevens. Dear Justin and Will, love the podcast. Seriously. Ooh. Oh, thank you. Before listening, I had never seen a full-length feature film, but now I am president of the Chantal Ackerman <laughs> Appreciation Society in Medford, Ohio. Wow. So you see the impact you have. Oh, my God. Here is my I feel like I've actually made a difference in the world now, <laughs> as opposed to just, you know, taking from the world as I normally do. <laughs> Here is my request. Go deeper. So often in listening to the episodes, we'll be about 20 minutes in and you guys will be wrapping up. In the mind of this lone viewer, the podcast would ideally occupy that sweet spot between the chance run-in at a party with someone who loves and is knowledgeable about film and a pretentious MoMA-esque lecture. <laughs> sometimes, but not too often, but sometimes, it veers toward the superficial. Wait a minute. Okay, this letter started strong, <laughs> but now I'm not so sure anymore. Dare to bore me. That's my feedback. Love, I love the podcast, John. Well, I'm not so sure you really do love it, John. Actually, you know what? I, what I will say is I'm glad to hear this because every week we get these complimentary letters and it's about time we finally got some constructive criticism on this show, don't you think? Yeah. And it let sounds us... like we're writing these letters, honestly. <laughs> let us not implement that criticism at well, all. Okay, here, here's the thing, John. Um, if, if, if we can make this my full-time job somehow. <laughs> oh, if we get enough uh, Patreon subscribers that we can if, do it. If you can give me 70000 a year for this. Oh, whoa. 70000 Yeah, I, I don't think that's too much to ask. Um, that's 70000 The Chapo guys make like 70000 a month. That's G insane. Give me seventy a year. And then... So that would be 140000 Yeah, so, so, that's, so that's great. A year. That's not asking too much if the Chapo guys make like 60000 we're, we're as good as them. So, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this podcast, I quickly discovered uh, at the start, has its own um, expiration date as far as talking about movies. We do not time out how long me and Will will talk about something. Yeah. But, like, we run out of steam. If you look at the times, basically at the same time every week. Well, and sadly, I think what this means is we're just superficial people. <laughs> there you go. So, yes. sorry. Also, we do it every week. And so it's like preparing a lecture that we have to improvise. I was up late last night watching fucking Bones. So, you know, I, I'm sorry. I'm doing the best I can over here. And if, I mean, it's not going to help being superficial, but, you know, we do a Patreon every week that's 20 minutes longer. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, give us, give us five I mean, bucks. I'm not going to look if you're a Patreon well, subscriber, I, John, but... I, I... <laughs> 
I'm so I'm sorry, but those those Patreon episodes will not give you any more depth than you're getting here. So. But we will talk about Austin Powers for yeah, 20 minutes. That's right. Uh, so if you just want to meet us at a party and hang out with us, you yeah, know? we'll talk to you for probably about 15 minutes yeah, before yeah. we move on to a different subject. Yeah. And as far as like digging really deep, this is also a podcast that I would love for people who don't even know the subject would click on and want to listen to. Yeah. And if we dig like super deep into it, I feel that would be a little bit alienating yeah. to people. We want, we're your unthreatening friends. <laughs> we're the guys who you listen to and say, I'm as smart as them, or perhaps <laughs> even smarter. Um, if they can like these movies, surely I can too, because yeah. they're fucking dummies. <laughs> Whoa, whoa, whoa. I would like how that sentence went right up until the last few words. Yeah. Okay. So, I was going to say, where's the. So, do we, so do we have a nice uh, uh, complimentary letter to, to chase that one? <laughs> Listen, he says multiple times that he yeah, loves the podcast. Right. I, I'm sorry, John. I'm just ragging you. Like uh, you ragged me. And uh, yeah, we don't want any constructive criticism. <laughs> uh, we do have a letter here. It's a very short one, our final one. It says, from Nate Wilson Can you guys do Cat in the Hat? Um, Patreon episode? <laughs> Maybe. I've actually never seen The Cat in the Hat. I, I found that shocking when you told me that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we did Austin Powers. I feel like we probably mine that Michael Myers well as deep as it's going to go. <laughs> yeah. Unless we dedicate The Cat in the Hat to Bo Welsh, the director of the film. Oh, and the, that, that's an interesting option, isn't it? <laughs> the production designer of a lot of Tim Burton's biggest pictures. Yeah, yeah. So we, we'll, we'll do Cat in the Hat. We'll talk a little bit about Mike Myers, a little bit about Bo Welch, and we'll talk a lot about Mike Myers' book about Canada. <laughs> <laughs> did you read it? No, you didn't. I flipped through it at Indigo. <laughs> yeah, it's <okay>. shit. <laughs> It's garbage. It's it's something that somebody's aunt would buy them for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. And they would go, okay, read five pages yeah. of it and then put on a shelf And then somewhere. ten years later, it's right at Goodwill. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Why do they have this many copies of this book? It's there next to Mike Bullard's autobiography <laughs> and Stupid White Men. <laughs> <laughs> um, Goodwill is the depository for all the Michael Moore books in the world. You know, it's great going to Goodwill and just seeing what was popular 15 years ago. Like, look at all these copies of the Animatrix. <laughs> Hey, man, I went to go see Dreamcatcher just to see that chart at the beginning of it. Uh, this week's Patreon, uh, we talk about Alex Ross Perry, director of Listen Up, Philip, Queen of Earth, and The Color Wheel. Mm. This is not a hugely comedic one, just a filmmaker that me and Will felt we couldn't talk about for an entire episode. And we like him. Yep, and we like him. So if you like Alex Ross Perry, want to know who he is, become a Patreon subscriber, $5 a month. You get four episodes. Yeah. Last week we talked about uh, Rush Hour. So <laughs> that's where you can get the laughs. Uh, okay, so what are we doing next week, Will? Next week we're going to be looking at bad movies, but not just any bad movies. We'll be looking at the movies that are kind of like our our centuries, like famous midnight bad movies. The ones that people go and see and throw spoons at the screen. Yeah. So we'll be looking at, of course, The Room by mm. Tommy Wiseau, soon to be a major motion picture starring uh, James Franco. Playing at Toronto International Film Festival's Midnight Madness. Get your tickets now. Yes. Um, so there'll be that. We'll be talking about Birdemic. Uh, we'll be talking about Troll 2. Yeah, and, that sounds good. And you know what? Why not also throw in a little discussion on Sharknado? I think one that's of very the Sharknado important. films. Yeah. Uh, when we talked about bad movies, something that interested me would to approach the output of the asylum mm -hmm. i mean we're not gonna watch a bunch of their movies because no. come on yeah <laughs> you already just mentioned yeah. three film yeah. four yeah i mean sharknado five just premiered yeah. on the sci-fi network we probably don't have to revisit it too but we could maybe just touch on fateful findings mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think i've seen fateful findings enough yeah <laughs> so and yeah that's we're not gonna approach it from the like these movies are bad how did this get made <laughs> but more of 
why are these films popular? What do people see in them? And why do they continue to live on as bad movies? Mm. Uh, that sounds so academic and dry. Yeah. <laughs> but I promise we'll bring the laughs. Well, we're, su- we're superficial people. <laughs> <laughs> You uh, didn't say. Uh, you didn't say us. You said our discussions. Which no, but but we are. Oh yeah, we I'm, are. I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying are. that. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. Until then, you can send your letters or comments or constructive criticism to the Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And until then, my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. I just left a pause there to edit out <laughs> what Will said. So um, if you want to know what he said, you never will. Oh man. <laughs> I don't know, Will. What movie should I go see in theaters this weekend? How could I ever decide? Well, there's a website called RottenTomatoes.com, which aggregates all of the critics uh, for a scientifically proven, indisputable recommendation. Have you seen some of the articles that have been popping up like, why did Baywatch fail? Some industry insiders believe that it may be the critics giving it bad reviews, keeping people away. Uh, uh, do you think it is? Uh, I think it's probably just movies that people don't want to see. I think so. But I also think like critics giving, giving, uh, Baywatch bad reviews. I mean, like, obviously nobody wants to see Baywatch, but yeah. it just adds to the negative yeah, it hype does. around it, you know? So where are you on the- I, I didn't see Baywatch because the reviews were Really? Bad. Yeah. Because honestly, the trailers looked kind of fun to me. Yeah. I thought, oh, hot bods, you know, summer, <laughs> summer sun. I'm a big uh, Zac Efron head and yeah. Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So, some, some of these ladies look uh, look uh, pretty attractive, in my opinion. <laughs> I'm, I'm all for that. But then the reviews were bad. And I thought also the fact that Baywatch was sold as from the director of Horrible Bosses. <laughs> As if I was supposed to care. Uh, also from the director, has there been any further fall than the director of King of Kong? Oh, great film. <laughs> he directed Horrible Bosses. Couples did, Retreat. Yeah, uh, he did. Identity Thief. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was trying to get to Four Christmases. Oh, Man, God. what a filmography. But, uh, like, that even happened again this weekend when The Dark Tower came out, where people were like, oh, critics, they don't know anything. Oh, yeah. And it gets like 19%. But, specifically, Rotten Tomatoes. You read or listen to any podcast of people that love film, they hate Rotten Tomatoes. Because movies aren't just good or bad, Will. They're also, you know, they have layers of good or layers of bad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you I, agree? Uh, yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> so you're not a fan of Rotten Tomatoes? I mean, not really. I, I honestly find Rotten Tomatoes useless because, first of all, the, the interface of the website yeah. is so such, an, such a headache. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, for, I mean, if I go to a movie review site, I might go to something like Metacritic because mm. it's a, a somewhat more, or a critics roundup because it's a more curated selection. I don't need to know what all of these YouTubers think. So the thing about Rotten Tomatoes, and I'm shockingly going to say something positive about them, is that what do they serve to do for a lot of people? One simple thing. Will I see this movie or will I not see this movie? Right. Because if I see a movie has like 15% rotten, I'm probably going to go, you know what? Don't need to see that in theaters. Sure. That's that's useful, I guess. Yeah. that's. I think that's the only real use other than collecting every review under the sun. But when it becomes to the point where people are fighting over it having 93% or 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, that's when you're in trouble. Well, yeah, that's all the, it's like those Christopher Nolan fans who like get so upset when a critic gives like three stars instead of mm-hmm. four stars to Dunkirk because they need, they need like people root for these movies to have perfection because they take the perfect or they root for it to have the perfect score because they take comfort in the fact that well at least there are some things we can 
we can believe in in this <laughs> in this in this fright as long as long as we all agree that the dark knight is a perfect film well like a c plus on Rotten tomatoes i think is a pass is right it? now yeah uh, which is interesting 60 percent is yeah. is fresh uh <laughs> i was struck this summer by the fact that all of these movies like when when i was a kid to get 90 percent on rotten tomatoes was a big deal but now like dunkirk is 93 percent girl's trip is 87 percent spider-man homecoming is 92 percent detroit 88 percent war of the planet of the apes 93 percent maybe these movies are all good will baby driver 95 percent wonder uh, woman 92 percent the big sick 98 percent yeah these movies are all great uh, I mean, most of these movies, frankly, are like three star movies yeah. that that three and a half stars, three and a half which stars, which technically counts as a French, I guess. But it's like you know, everyone they're all kind of harmless and inoffensive, so yeah. there's nothing to object to, and therefore ninety eight percent. Yeah. So you think and, that the weird thing is is that it has such a massive score because yeah, it well, is harmless and ineffective. Well, I mean. If if everyone agrees on something, that makes me suspicious of it, frankly, because it means there's not there's nothing interesting there. Oh, really? Yeah, it means there it's it's inoffensive and it kind of hits the it's competent and it hits all the right beats. And if ninety eight percent of critics agree that it's good, so what's your perfect that, Rotten Tomato score? It'd be like seventy percent around seventy eight percent. Yeah, uh, that, yeah. Like we talked about that with the Alex Ross Perry film, The Color Wheel has like fifty percent on Rotten yeah, Tomatoes. Yeah, because it is such. What a... did Freddie Got Fingered get? That's my perfect Rotten Tomato <laughs> score. I bet you it's probably like twelve percent. <laughs> probably less than that. probably like one percent. Yeah, because like who gave a positive? Because <laughs> the thing about Rotten Tomatoes, what it also does is it highlights people's reviews right because people who like a film will click on who yeah. has rotten and then attack that person yeah. which makes you think if the art of like mainstream criticism it, it is affected by that and how you're going to be interpreted in that way but also if some of these movies have uh a hundred reviews and it's and it's 98 percent positive then i start to think why do we need all these reviews <laughs> if, if all of these kind of like uh you know pasty looking uh 24 year old dweebs who write for indie wire uh are, gi- are giving <laughs> throw indie wire right yeah under the bus. i'm throwing down take it out take, take this down. screen rant if they're all <laughs> if they're all giving the same same reviews and and give and liking it for the same reasons then i think well that's not that's not very interesting why because the only thing that they exist to do is to let you know go see this movie or do not well go it see just this means movie. that all these people are approaching the movie through the same paradigm mm-hmm. uh and they they have the same values yeah and that's not that's not interesting no you want like the out there people the jonathan rosenbaum of the world frankly yes yes yeah do they even exist anymore though uh, I mean, I'm sure I'm you sure can find do. them in film comment. Get your subscription <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know. I mean, that, that, that's what I think. <laughs> yeah, you don't know. You throw up your hands and you're like a millennial. You're like, whatever. Yeah, I don't care. Yeah. Freddie got fingered. Got 11 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. You know, I think that it's actually up from when it first came out. <laughs> oh, the revisionist takes are finally arriving. Yeah, I think so.